0: First, outside the box with Jeff Conine of 2023, and we've got a lot of topics. Of course, I'm arm Wayton. He's Jeff Conine. We're going to talk Hall of Fame. We're going to talk players' physicals and the Carlos Correa situation, and then a little bit more on the difference of environment, because we know Jeff was a one of the best hitters of all time at, at Coors Field in Mile High but uh, we want to talk about how much that should be weighed against Todd Helton and and that whole conversation there as well. Niner, how was your new year? How's everything going and uh I know it's been it's been a little bit of a a whirlwind over the last couple of weeks for you given that now, now you got the position with the Marlins now we're heading into 2023. How's everything been on your end? Everything's
1: been great. Uh, happy New Year by the way. Um Obviously, as you get up in age, uh, you wouldn't know this yet, but it's pretty low key as far as New Year's is concerned. We stay at home most of the time now and uh, have friends over and, um, you know, safe, safe and sound. But uh, all is good with the Marlins, Uh, you know, looking forward to spring training and getting real baseball started again. And, um, you know, uh, excited about my position with the team.
0: I feel like that's one of your. Favorite things, right? Is is kind of getting boots on the ground, getting involved on the field during spring training. Would that be fair to say? I know you, you did some things during the offseason with MLB, even before you took the position with the Marlins. Like, how much do you enjoy just just being out on the ball field and and just being able to, to be a resource to these players? I mean, it's what you did at FIU, even as well. Well, that's you know, that's my uh my sweet
1: spot, I guess you'd call it is that I love instructing, I love talking shop, I love. Uh, Like you said, getting out there with the guys and and answering questions and talking through different situations and, um, you know, uh, I think I'll I'll do some of that during spring training. We'll we'll get uh, with the outfielders and, you know, John Jay, I've had some conversations with him and he's going to be working with the outfielders. So excited to uh, work with him and, and, and
0: get stuff going. So I know I just didn't mention it in the opening, but you kind of spurred a thought in my head here. And I know you haven't had as much time to to get to know the entire staff yet. And you will as as we get closer to the season, but I know you have some some good thoughts about some of the guys that have been brought on. Of course, Skip Schumacher being the manager, you're gonna to get to know him a little bit more in the future, but guys that you played against the staff is a lot of, a lot of grinders, a lot of players who you had pretty long, big league careers. And uh, I know we spoke about it a little bit uh, another time, but I know you were, you were pretty excited about some of the guys brought on board. And I would love for you to just kind of elaborate a little bit more on that. And, you know, what you think of the way this staff has started to round out around Skip Schumacher, who, you know, I'm really excited to see what he can do.
1: Yeah. You know, Skip is uh was that type of player, not a superstar, but, Still a very good major league player for quite a bit of time with one of my favorite organizations. You know, outside looking in, you look at the St. Louis Cardinals organization and what they did every year to be successful, even though they had a lot of turnover uh, as far as player personnel, um, uh, front office personnel. It seems like the core values of that organization have never changed, and they flat out win every single year. It doesn't matter who you change in and out those pieces. Um, they they have them fit into a system that works and they know it works and they win every year. So I think Skip's going to bring a lot of that uh, with him um, to the Marlins organization. I think he's surrounding himself, the type of player he was, John Jay was another guy that, you know, I've, I've talked to uh, at length. He lives down here in South, in South Florida. Um, You know, I was in his bowling, did his bowling tournament when he used to have his bowling tournament and just a quality guy that, that really cares about, um making players better you know Jody Reed another guy that's uh that's a, a baseball lifer that's been out there um grinder type player that I think is going to do do wonders for this team Barajas Rod Barajas is now uh with the Marlins who um you know was another type guy that uh, you look across the field and said hey, I'd like to be a teammate with that guy so yeah, you know, I really like the way the staff has um been constructed I think um, there's a lot of great baseball people involved. And now it's all about transferring all that knowledge and the way to play the game to the players.
0: And hopefully they buy in. You feel like the the, the grinders make sometimes the, the best coaches, the guys that really had to to work hard to figure it out and, and maximize every ounce of their ability. Uh, do, do you feel like there's there's a correlation there through your experience?
1: Oh, Absolutely, because I think those guys realize how important it is to play baseball the right way. And, you know, we throw that term around a lot. Oh, you got to play it the right way. But I'm talking about, you know, this team is not going to be a, a team constructed to wait back and and get three-run homers uh, to win to, to win games. They're going to have to produce runs. And I think those grinder-type players know how to get a guy over, no situational hitting, no situational base running, no situational uh, defensive play. So all that combined, uh, I think the baseball IQ of the Marlins is going to go way up um,
0: when these guys take over. Which I'm really excited about, because you know that that's something that you know with a lot of young players, uh, a lot of guys that you know could make that leap next year with with some of the fundamentals focused on and some of the little things uh, that could be huge and also base running. And We're talking about what I was watching with the Marlins last year, and I know you've talked about this across the whole league. This isn't a Marlins unique thing, but I, I think the Marlins were kind of uh, one of the prime examples of this: is that base running is a bit of a lost art in the game. And you've talked about this on the podcast, and I feel like the staff that is built around, including now you being involved there, there's gonna be some better base running uh, and, and some better, you know, little between the margin type things that that can help you win ball games, especially when you know you're in a division where. It's going to be tough. You're not going to be able to stack up player to player with with some of these other teams, but you can still win ball games. And you've been part of teams that didn't stack up, maybe, quote unquote, player to player going into the season, but did all of the little things right to kind of take it to the next level. Um, wh- what are you most excited about before we go to the, the Hall of Fame talk? What are you most excited about for this upcoming season uh, personally and and, you know, kind of for the team? Well,
1: you know, it, it's about progress. Um for myself personally, it's where where can I help? Um I'm here to help across the board. I'm I'm hoping to help on the field. I'm hoping to to help uh, you know, with the baseball side, with the business side of it and help the Marlins get get some um, better marketing going and some uh kind of turn that that ship around of Um, the woe is me Miami fan and say, let's get on board with this team. Let's get on board with the players that we have. I'm excited to see what this coaching staff is going to put together as far as, you know, is there going to be like a Marlins way? Is it going to create something that everyone in the entire organization can grab a hold of and uh, strive towards every day, which, you know, I think the great organizations, they instill this, cardinal way or, you know, diamondbacks. I told you when I went to the diamondbacks, they have uh, the way they have created this culture there. um, And it's all about creating this culture and, and people, players have to buy into it first and foremost, but the leadership has to define what that is and sell it to everybody. And everyone has to buy in. So you're a bit, you're, you're a culture guy. You know, I'm, I'm all about being a part of something that Uh, is bigger than yourself you know uh you like you know my double-a manager always said you're you're playing for the name on the front not the name on the back so Mm -hmm. um in in the end yes you're trying to maximize your personal stats and and potential so you can move on and you know it's a very short career we have in this game so i'm all about maximizing uh your time and and being able to earn as much as you can but at the same time we're here to win, you know, we yeah. put on a uniform
0: to win. We're part of a team and uh, I'm a big time culture guy. And, and it's funny because you can look across sports and it seems like some of the most successful franchises beyond baseball are, are franchises, organizations that that have that culture, you know, top to bottom and, and have that buy in. And I think having the right staff and, and the right leadership is the first step. And And I think this is part of the reason why I'm really excited for this year, because, you know, especially after you Told me how you felt about a lot of the people that are that are coming in and, and going to be alongside and around Skip and, and how excited you were about that with you now involved, too. I feel like that's a great first step to instilling that culture in this kind of next phase of the organization. Speaking to long careers and someone who had a really long one and maybe one of the the things that I give you the most credit for tipping me off on, because once you told me about this, I became very hell-bent on it. It was Fred McGriff, right? You said Fred McGriff should be in the Hall of Fame. And once you said that, it really just kind of was singed in my brain. I'm like, how is this dude not in the Hall of Fame. Well, we have the Veterans Committee who finally elects Fred McGriffin. He gets in. And and this was extremely exciting because, again, I mean, this guy, statistically speaking, phenomenal, right? 493 home runs, 284, 377, 509 slash line. He played for 19 years. He was decorated. He played the game by as far as I know. And this is where I'm excited for you to kind of color it in the right way. And, you know, just was a well-rounded ball player. Uh, We've talked about him in the past and and I didn't know how long it was going to be or if we would ever actually see him get in Uh, and here he is. First off, you know, did you think he would get in this quickly? And second off, you know, how excited are you for somebody that, you know, belongs in there? It feels like justice, you know, which with the hall of fame recently, it's been wishy washy. There's a lot of debate and a lot of things. And it just felt like this was one of those things that wasn't really debatable. So it was interesting that, you know, it took a while, but finally in this time where we're debating a lot of things beyond baseball, the guy that, Purely, it was just a baseball argument finally gets in.
1: Yeah. You know, when I first saw that list that came out of, I think it was eight guys on that list. And I'm scanning down and I stop at Fred McGriff and I'm like, this is it right here. This is a chance. He deserves to be in the Hall of Fame. We've spoken about it. Uh, I played against him and, you know, just one of those consummate professionals. The guy was so consistent. His whole career, not only uh, statistically wise, but just demeanor. You know, he'd get out there and he played the game the same way every single night in, night out. And you know, it was great to compete against him. And I'm, I'm glad to see he finally got his due and
0: recognition to be in the Hall of Fame because uh, he deserved it. And what was it that you think made him so good? Because I know it's the power. I know it's the consistency, too. I mean, hitting 284 with the near 500 home runs is, is pretty remarkable. And I that you probably crossed paths out when when he was in Atlanta. You were mm-hmm. with the Marlins, at least for a few of those years, right? 94, 95. You, you saw a lot of him, right? Yep. Yeah, I saw a lot of them. Uh, too much of them
1: sometimes. <laughs> yeah, that 90. 94- uh, he was one of those guys that, that you didn't want to be holding a guy on first uh, when he's up at the plate because – you know, it's awful close there. It's a that's a very close ninety feet when he's uh, got an inside fastball to turn on. Um, but that's just it. You know, he's one of those guys. You know, you talk about wanting to be a teammate of or, or looking across the field and and just know that the guy played the game the right way and was a great guy in the clubhouse and just very very well respected. You know, Fred McGriff for me embodied kind of all of
0: it. He was just he was a ball player. And one of the big topics now is is this. You know, current Hall of Fame ballot. And, you know, we've talked about the steroid guys. We've talked about all that. But a topic that I texted you about, because I think it's really fascinating, is Todd Helton. And I think you can speak to this even, even more, uh, I think, with, with a little bit more insight than one, the average person, because you played baseball for a very long time, but two, because you really reap the rewards. You could probably speak to it even more than the average player because you really reap the rewards of Coors Field. And I'm sure you've had moments where you think about, well, what if I played at Coors Field? We've talked about it with the expansion draft and how you were kind of hoping to go there. At the same time, there's a, a level of No matter where you're playing, if you hit 316 for your career and you do what Todd Helton did, you know, hitting 372 in a single season, flirting with 400 as long as he did in the modern era is absolutely absurd. Uh, But at the same time, there's the big home run splits, and that's something that's that's held Helton back a little bit. What's your take on all this? And I'm not going to, you know, make you say hey, is he a hall of famer or not. I would just love a little bit more, you know, context from from somebody who who experienced it, right? Kind of experienced the the benefit that comes with course field but at the same time understands how hard it is to do it year in and year out no matter where you're playing and that's pretty much what Todd Helton did. Uh, you know, what are your thoughts on the whole Todd Helton debate here and and you know, any any perspective that you can kind of add to that?
1: Well, I mean, you know, you're talking about another one of my favorite players that I played against was Todd Helton. Uh, talk about, you know, playing the game um, hard every single day. And that a guy had grit and he had uh, leadership um, and he could just flat out rake. He could play first base. You know, I, I didn't enjoy going to Coors Field when he was playing first base because I knew um, he had a lot uh, of hands in beating us on, on uh, many, many occasions. So, um, when you respect a guy like that, when you, and you look across that field and and say that, you know, I could see him being a Hall of Famer one day, yes, the numbers probably haven't amassed like some of the um Hall of Famers that we've seen uh get get in recently. Um, uh, what's he got like 360 some home runs? Um, which you know, now by now, day standards is kind of kind of short for a Hall of Famer, but when you embody just the whole you know work that he did over his career, um, you know, did he dominate in his era? And I think he did. I think he was one of the premier players at his or any other position
0: uh, in the era that he played in. How different is it pitch movement wise? Because we know what the, what the field is like in, in one of my, one of the favorite, my favorite points you've brought up because everyone always talks about, Oh, the ball carries out there. Yeah, sure. But when you're a contact oriented hitter, which you were and Todd Helton was, I mean, you guys hit home runs, but at the end of the day, you guys were putting the ball in play consistently. It seemed like you guys kind of reap the rewards even more because you got so much space to work with in the outfield. And then you brought that point up in the past. But the other thing that I think is interesting is people look at the home road splits and a lot of times guys really struggle away from cores, but it's beyond just because of the fact that you get the bump from cores. It's also when you go elsewhere, ball starts moving a little bit more right too, because you look at a Nolan Arenado, he seems to have figured it out, you know, away from cores. And he was a guy that had some, some dramatic splits. How different was the movement profile on these pitches when you were out there? Was that something that you noticed at all? Uh, like, can you speak to that much? You know, you know, they said,
1: yeah, because of the thin air that that fastballs weren't uh, moving quite as much curveballs, sliders didn't have as much break um, as they do at sea level. I didn't notice like a glaring difference, you know, if they're talking an inch or two, all right, that, but it wasn't like, oh my God, the ball doesn't break here. I still saw sinkers, I still saw sliders. Yeah, And ball moved there just uh, like anywhere else, probably a fraction less. I think the biggest benefit from Coors is the confidence factor, because hmm. like we talked about, you look out there, this field is so massive. There's so much grass out there. It's almost like you're, you know, you're hitting into a Canyon. I'm like, hell, I can get hits out here. I can get a flare. I can get a ball in the gap. That's going to split a gap that, you know, in a small bar par- ballpark, someone's going to run it down, but here they're too far away. They, you know, and everyone's afraid of getting the outfitters always their number one fear is getting a ball hit over their head. So everyone plays super deep at Coors field even though the ball carries, if it's over your head, it's going to be out anyway. So, you know, as we had this discussion a while ago, I think they should have made it regular dimensions, put higher walls out in the outfield, but let the playing acreage be kind of on par with every other field. Um, but I, you know, going there, like I've told you, is like if I'm in a slump and I'm struggling, I just look on the schedule to see when I'm going to course Field because I know I'm going to get out of it. I know I'm getting hits. And just that confidence factor is what I think – benefit you as much if anything than the actual ballpark
0: as a as a guy who who has run plenty in his life doing the Ironman I know you've done marathons you've done everything you've climbed mountains um so I know you've gotten used to that but I was watching a basketball game yesterday and they did like a a halftime interview with one of the players who they were visiting the Nuggets I think it was the Clippers visiting the Nuggets and they said you know they were getting boat raced I think they were down 30 at half and Asked him, "What's it like to to compete out here? You know, with this altitude, how tough is it?" And and he said, "It sucks." Which I was surprised to hear him say that, but he said, "It sucks. Hey, it's really tough to play up here." Obviously, baseball, it's it's a little different, but before I moved on to the next topic, I just wanted to ask you from your experience of just, you know, you are a guy that, that runs a lot, has really good cardiovascular endurance. uh, Did you, did you feel like there was a difference there uh, if you were pitching or whatever, that where you could see maybe guys running out of gas earlier from that altitude, like how different is it for an athlete that is trying to sustain endurance? Fortunately for, for hitters, not much of a problem, but just generally speaking.
1: Yeah, I can definitely see uh, for the pitching side of it. Um, you know, there's not as much oxygen. So you're not going to get as much oxygen in your blood to your muscles. I think you fatigue more quickly up there for sure. Um, And that's another home field advantage that that Coors has is that those guys are kind of used to it. So they should play better in that if you're more acclimated to the, um, the altitude. I remember uh, when I was at mile high, I was in triple a playing against the brewers and I hit a ball to dead center field and mile high had a massive center field. It was like 430 feet or something like that. So I crush a ball out there and I, The center fielder is running back, tries to catch it, hits off the wall and he goes down. So I'm on my horse, man. I'm like, he goes down. These, the other outfielders are trying to get to the ball. So I'm like, I'm scoring, I'm scoring. And I tell you, man, when I crossed home plate, I damn near passed out. I was like seeing stars because, you know, I don't have many inside the park home runs in my entire career, but that one, like, that's when I really felt it. Like I got back to the bench and I was gassed. Like, just that one sprint around the bases like that totally threw me off and, and like uh, exhausted me. So I think it's definitely, it definitely throws a factor when you talk about playing basketball or hockey at that, at
0: that or football. I mean, my goodness, that would be, that's, that would be a challenge for a visiting team for sure. What kind of shape were you in then though? Because again, was that, was that, that was before marathon Jeff Conine. That was before I was was just post, you know, national racquetball,
1: Caliber Jeff Conine. So I was in good shape. I was in very good shape. That says a lot. a lot of racket. I still played a lot of racquetball back then. So I was probably in better anaerobic shape than I was later
0: on in aerobic shape. Wow. So that's when I felt it. Wow. I mean, that's still, that's, that's ridiculous. And that's something I always think of. And I'm like, If I ever get the opportunity to ask someone that's competed at that level, like I'll ski or snowboard, I go up the stairs or go like just walk around and I'm gassed. But you know, it's me, it's not saying as much. But yeah, that from you, that says a lot. I'm going to try to dig up that video, by the way. I would love to find and see if I can find your arms flailing around third as you're trying to get triple A, triple A. So I don't know if anything's, oh, uh, that's going to be hard. Yeah, that's going to be hard. That's going to be hard. That's the other thing, too, in the minor leagues, you have the the Pacific Coast League and, and, and some of those stadiums out there are, are like the moon as well. And, and and seeing the way some of these offensive numbers jump up is pretty wild. Before we move on to, to Correa and, and physicals and all that stuff. Again, I know you, you were a Todd Helton fan, so I'm not going to put you on the spot of whether you think he should or whatever. But how do you think voters should approach in general? Because Larry Walker is a guy that I mean. He had the opportunity to play elsewhere and kind of show it elsewhere, which which I think helped his case, but it was up till the final moment with him. How do you think voters writers, you know, if if, if I am ever lucky enough to cast a vote, I can promise you, I'm going to be consulting you for your thoughts here and there. And uh, what would you advise me if I asked you, how should I approach voting on players who played a majority of their career at Coors Field? What would you tell me? I would say, you know, yes.
1: The numbers are going to be skewed. Uh, Visiting numbers are skewed. My numbers are skewed there. Everyone's numbers are going to be skewed there. But you got to take into account, you know, was this player a dominant player? Not only there, but away from there. And unfortunately, I think the first thing that everyone goes to when they are going to have a, a Rockies player come up for the hall is that, nope, he's not worthy because he played at Coors Field. Um, and like you said, there are other Hall of Famers that that had some awful splits that are in the Hall of Fame. So uh, I, I shouldn't I wouldn't discount a player just because he played at Coors Field because Todd Helton was, like I said, a top five player in our game for as long as he played our game. and As long yeah. as I played against him, he was a top five guy. And and
0: that's all there is to it. He could flat out rake and he, and, played, and, a goal, and, he played a gold glove first base as well. Yeah. If you, on the flip side too, right? You have, let's say you have a pitcher. I don't know if this has ever really come up yet, but you have a pitcher that pitched a majority of his career at Coors and he's just outside of the hall. Are we pushing him in then at that point with that logic, it would only be fair to apply it that way. Right? Absolutely. Absolutely. Cause you know, uh, I think it would probably
1: apply even more on the pitching side because it's expected that they, they won't perform as well at Coors than everywhere else. So those numbers, I think in, most people's minds will skew downward where, you know, the offense skews upwards. And,
0: but I think the, the hitter gets a uh, short end of the stick there. I'm waiting for the pitcher that's brave enough to pitch 15 seasons at Coors and, and has a hall of fame case up there. Cause I, fr- from your experience, I mean, it, that's gotta be a big deterrent, right? I, I always wonder if you're the general manager of, of the Colorado Rockies, how do you convince guys to come there? How do you convince guys to, to come pitch there? It's gotta be really tough. Yeah. Money, yeah, money is a, a good good way to <laughs>
1: entice guys because, yeah, you know, yeah, okay, so the numbers might be skewed a little bit, but Denver's an awesome place to play. Uh, it's an awesome stadium to play in. You know, there's a lot of positive factors that go into that, and they might have to overpay a little bit to get good guys to play there because their numbers uh, are going to be skewed a little bit. But hell, I would have enjoyed playing there. <laughs> Where was your least favorite place to hit? Um. You know you always look at your least favorite places to hit because you didn't really have success there so yeah you know i always say coors field because i hit
0: really well there um uh but there wasn't like an environment or like stadium that like you know i look at detroit you look at america right like nick Cassiano's big doubles guy big gap to gap guy and a lot of his doubles were just erased or a lot of his home runs turned into either doubles or were run down in the, in the gaps. And he got extremely frustrated went to Cincinnati and put up crazy numbers there. Right. I, is, was there anywhere where you just felt like when you, you either didn't see the ball well, or, or you didn't, you know, really, you felt like you, you square it up and it gets caught and run down at the track. The reason why I'm asking you this is if there was a place like that, I was going to ask how much more it would take for you to play at that place, like to sign with that team. I, I just had a curiosity. Um,
1: I'm trying to, Remember if there's any places that I just like, oh God, I hate hitting here. um you know, i I don't think I ever really hit well at at Fenway. I don't know if that, which is wild
0: because that's actually one of the more hitter friendly,
1: yeah, I don't parks. know if my if I did hit well at Wrigley, I always thought that I didn't because maybe you pointed this out. yeah, I did I played so many day day games and I didn't like playing day games, but apparently I hit very well in day games. so i I hit well at um at Wrigley, but I don't think I hit well wow. at at um. Fenway I don't know if that that wall got in my head like you're trying oh I gotta try to pull the ball and get it off the wall or get it up over the wall uh I just don't
0: remember hitting the ball well there at all which is interesting because again it is one of those like very hitter friendly parks statistically but there's there's got to be some guys that just have that that barrier there with the big wall it's 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 pretty bizarre if you really think about it but you're also able to Kind of play pepper with it if you get used to that. So, uh, yep. it, it's it's one of the more unique ballparks. I know you don't like the historic ones from a visiting standpoint uh, as much, which is always a funny conversation. But I want to talk a little bit about Carlos Correa, um, and, and not as much about the details of the contract and the situation and this and that. More about just. What's happening from a player's perspective in terms of, you know, when when you were playing, we didn't see the, the, the 10, 12, 13 year deals as much. Right. But you have been in a front office and, and you know, part of an organization as those deals started to come out and, uh, you know, even were involved with the Marlins when they gave that deal to John to Carlos Stanton. Right. So we, we've seen it and, and you've kind of seen the process that goes into it. And Carlos Correa is one of the best players in Major League Baseball. There's there's no doubting that he, he's. Great on you know in the field he's he's great with the stick and unfortunately he he signs this big time deal or doesn't sign it yet but agrees to this big time deal with the Giants red flag in the physical what ends up being really interesting and like bizarre to me is that the Mets come come in here and do the same thing and then they're surprised that their doctors see the same thing as the other renowned doctors with the Giants and have the red flag and now as we stand as we're recording this on January sixth at two thirty eight p.m it's looking a little bit more bleak with the Mets and there's no deal even close at this point. I don't want to get into like, I'm not a doctor. I don't know anything about that. And, and, and speculations ridiculous there, but from the standpoint of a player, what is the physical process like, you know, and are, is, is it a different physical for a two year deal versus a 10 year deal? Is it more encompassing? Like, how does that all work? It sounds like such a basic, uh, like dumbed down question, but I think the average listener will have no idea. Like how different was a Carlos Correa physical maybe from, you know, a two year deal that was signed? Like maybe even what Gene Segura just went through with the Marlins with his physical. Like, well, what are the differences between those two?
1: Well, the differences are yes. Um, you know, you're talking about hundreds of millions of dollars difference uh, when you look at a two-year deal versus a, a Correa type, twelve, ten to ten to thirteen-year deal. So they go over every inch of this guy's body. Like they will X-ray everything. They get MRIs on everything. They will go every dig into the past any time he's ever been on the dl why was he on the dl if he's ever had surgery what was that surgery all about and they will scrutinize every piece of this information because hundreds of millions of dollars are at stake here and you don't want to lose that productivity and give the guy that kind of glue when there might be some problems in 3 or 4 years i mean Listen, all these deals, I think you're naive to the fact if you think that every one of these players is going to be productive in the years 8 through 13. They're not. Their production is going to go way down just because you're an aging athlete. Um, yeah, Verlander is a freak, and and he's done something that we are not used to seeing at all. You know, Ichiro was a freak that he still was productive at 41, 42, 43 years old. Um, you know, um, Nelson... Cruz is doing stuff that no other 40-year-old has done as far as hitting the ball out of the ballpark. But those are so rare that when you look at all these other guys, there's a reason why there's free agency uh, after six years. And there's a reason why you don't see many guys playing past their 35th birthday. It's just, it's hard. So when you're investing in that kind of money, I think these owners are like, you know what? I want 100% certainty that there's nothing in the past that can affect his future play. And, you know, I've no, I don't know much about this injury had in 2014, but yeah, you're talking eight years ago. Uh, And I don't think there's been a problem with that injury in the eight years since then. So to me, it sounds like there's something else that, that is in play here that maybe that injury isn't it, but there's an underlying somewhere other injury condition, something that they're, they're leery about because Mm -hmm. uh, you wouldn't think that two teams would back out of deals like this.
0: So that's 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 the big thing, right? And especially as Steve Cohen led Mets, where where money is is a figment of of our imagination, right? And that's what I wanted to ask you too, because as a player, I can't imagine what what it's like to to be putting up numbers and 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 just imagining you try to put yourself in his shoes here, right? You're putting up numbers consistently. You're totally healthy. You haven't had any you know major injuries since this presumed red flag in 2014 which is the plate in his leg that he had uh, which I think he aggravated and that was about it but what would it be like I was trying to think about this of just a team of doctors basically saying yeah yeah we're worried about your leg it's not holding up but you've been performing year after year after year and you feel fine physically um is that kind of what leads you to think there's more to it because again he's been performing, last few years he's been on the field for the most part the last couple years aside from some very small minor unrelated injuries and he had a a, something like a concussion or something random like that or covid bout or something like that during the season it was other things that caused him to miss time but what would it be like from that perspective of they're telling you that your body's not right but you feel just fine i can't really imagine what that dynamic is we don't know that for sure either
1: yeah you might actually
0: be hurting all the time and
1: maybe a trainer said something or maybe a teammate said something like oh my god this guy's he's going out there every day but he ain't 100% because you know of this or we don't know what's been said uh which just makes it makes me believe that something there's more to the story than than we know um and maybe it's because the mets are trying to play on it and say hey the giants found something we'll give you a year less for all this but you know, now they're trying to back out and say, forget it. Um, I think we're you're only good for six years. We'll give you a six-year deal. I don't know. I don't know what is in play here, but I wouldn't be surprised if something out um, at some point saying that Correa might have had something that held this deal up other than what they saw in, in the 2014
0: injury. How often, through your experience, is this something that you think is, is more common now because of just – how, how careful teams are and, and how much more money's being thrown around. Like, how often did you kind of see this thing kind of come up when you were playing or because of the lack of media didn't, you really didn't know whether it was happening or not as your teammates were signing deals or, or you know, just peers were signing deals elsewhere.
1: You know what, like you said, we never had, I never had the situation when I played, you know, our long-term deals were four years, uh, <laughs> five years, six years was like, oh my God, somebody got six years, that's crazy. And I think Sheffield got a six year $60 million deal uh, when he was with the Marlins, and I'm like, that is insane. That's craziness. Can't even think about it. Um, and now they're going 12, 13, 14 years. I mean, it doesn't even compute in my brain that that there's a deal that's that long and that much money. You know, so it's it's I, I can't even compare it to when we had it. I know, you know, I was a free agent one time. I signed a deal, and it was just like my regular physical. They just checked me out, and you know, how's everything feel? My like, great, and they off I went, you know, I I signed the deal where, you know, like I said, these guys with the technology now they can look into everything and they might be, you know, looking at cardiovascular systems and 3d imaging of brains and all kinds of stuff that we don't even know about. Which is,
0: which is almost like crazy. It's, it it gets to the point too where it's, you know, you wonder with the players association and, and, you know, just protecting these players to a degree too, because there's almost a certain level of, how much of me do you need to to see inside and out? Uh, like what? What is fair? Where Where are my boundaries? Do you think that's something that players will ever you know try to push back on? At a certain point of like, there's a difference between maybe physical and inspecting every inch of my soul, uh, or or do you think this is just kind of where we're heading as science advances and more money's being thrown around that the players may not have you know a leg to stand on? That's a probably a poor use of <laughs> a poor term as we're talking about Correa, but may not have uh, like a position there when this much money is being thrown around.
1: I don't think the players can get upset over the owners want to do their due diligence and know exactly what they're getting into. And they get a, you know, a product and you're a product on the field. That's what you're being signed up for is to perform. So, uh, it would be no different than a racehorse. You know, you're paying a million dollars for a racehorse. You're going to get that thing checked out to the nth degree. And if there's one little tiny problem, you're not going to give them that million bucks to that racehorse. So, um, uh, yeah, I don't want to liken a baseball <laughs> player to a racehorse, but. No, but- The investment is for potential and the investment is for production. And that's what they're investing in. That's what an owner is investing in. You're investing in Carlos Correa as a player that's going to be a productive cornerstone for your franchise for a long time, better part of a decade. They want to know exactly what
0: they're getting. So now that we see these these contracts just getting bigger, bigger, longer and longer, uh, but at the same time, we've seen many of them age relatively poorly. Right. And um, that's something we've talked about a little bit in the past, but that was before this monstrous off season, which is, I think is, Going to be remembered similar to the NBA offseason. And I've seen some there was the infamous NBA offseason where a lot of, you know, mid level players signed major deals. And, you know, for the next five plus years, a lot of teams couldn't get out from other of those contracts. I don't know if that happens as much here because you still had that that difference of tiers of really the elite players were really the only ones getting the mega deals. But do you think that this is a bubble or do you think that this is a consistent trend that we're seeing here? Because this does come after labor piece. This does come after MLB continues. to have good years in in the revenue department. Uh, And also there was some little things here and there that brought in more revenue for Major League Baseball. But do you think this is a consistent trend that we're just going to see go upwards? Or is there a stagnation maybe on the way uh, with the way that these contracts have just exploded over this offseason?
1: Well, I think, um, you know, there's a reason why the contracts have exploded and um, the revenue is coming in. Like you said, I think if the revenue wasn't coming in, then probably these offers wouldn't be um, like they are. But when you look at the mega deals and the the mega contracts, there's only about 10 teams in the league that can afford to pay um, these deals. You know, you got the New York teams, the Chicago teams, the LA teams, you know, these are the teams that have all the money coming in and they're going to be able to afford uh, more pricier players than the Marlins or the Rays or the A's, you know, there's there's just no revenue to back that up in those markets. So But I do think it's going to level out here um, and maybe regress a little bit in the future because um, it's just so crazy. The spike that it's taken and to continue on like it is, I think is just, um, I don't think it can sustain that. I don't know for how much longer, maybe 10 years from now, maybe five years from now. I don't know. But I just don't see how this level of increase can be
0: sustainable. So I was on, we were doing the Just Baseball show. And Jack McMullen, my co-host, just asked me a very simple question that really I had to like pause in the middle of the episode and think about it. So I'm going to do the same thing to you and and I'll give you ahead of it. My answer was was yes, but and then I want to see what your butt is, is Steve Cohen good for baseball? Just that question right there is the amount of money that Steve Cohen is spending right now in, in, in the polarity now that we're seeing. Because of it is, is, is that good for baseball or are those two separate things? Because I think a lot of, a lot of these teams, you know, find themselves fighting a different battle here, right? It's a different race, but at the same time, I'm always going to be here for, you know, team spending more money and, and, and putting the best product on the field possible. It's a pretty complex question. (laughs) It is. And I think, I think he's great for baseball. You know,
1: he's great for New York fans. Those fans want him to go out and, and make, put together the best team possible team they can. And he's doing that. So you can't fault him because he's super rich and wants to do this. And there's no rules that are in place to, to negate the fact that he can spend whatever he wants. Yes. There's a luxury tax, but obviously he doesn't, doesn't give care. a crap about that. <laughs> but I think people lose the side of the fact that the Yankees did this for 20 years. They outspended or outspent everyone. Like. They was, it that, was it that dramatic? I've never really 200 looked back. Million per year. Like they went far above everybody else for the longest time. And then finally, I think they got some fiscal responsibility. So, hey, we got to rein ourselves in a little bit here. Recently, the Dodgers, they're $300 plus every single year. So it's not like, you know, Steve Cohen's doing something that is the the most craziest thing in baseball. Yeah, he's gone crazy this offseason and and put a lot of uh, extra dollars into that that payroll, but um, we've seen it before. And not maybe to this extreme, but it's been happening – a lot with the Yankees. Uh, you don't hear about them much recently, but, uh, you know, 2000s, 2010s, they put some major, major dollars on that field. And, you know, like I said, early on, especially the late 90s, early 2000s, they had the best teams because they had the best players and they could afford them.
0: Yeah. And I'm int- I'm interested to see if more teams start doing what the, what the Atlanta Braves are doing, which is, You got your young players you roll the dice you leverage those those control years those arbitration years and you sign them affordably right we see michael harris come up dominate for 80 games and they're like all right we'll take a chance you want to sign a seven eight-year deal you know for 70 million dollars they did the same thing with acuna for 100 million and you know that looks like it's going to be a steal they did the same thing with Albie's for 35 million uh the last question i'll ask you in regards to money before we move on to the jersey is the pre-arb deals. I always think it's fascinating because it's a lot of people phrase it like a bet on yourself, right? Like, let's say for just to make it easy, you have three years of control of team control still left on your, on your contract and you're performing well. Three years is a long time. A lot of things can happen. God forbid, you know, you get injured or, or worse or what so you you could lose your eyesight. You could get worse yeah. at playing. Like you could just you could just lose it, right? Like you've probably seen that happen. How many times guy comes up, lights it up. I think of a Chris Coghlan back in the day, right? In today's game, he might've gotten offered a pre-arb deal that year. If he signs it, you know, he probably would have had a little bit more sustained, you know, financial stability there. He, He hung around long enough. I'm sure he did just fine. But if you were in that position, Would you strongly consider that pre-arb deal? Because it's something that I think is really kind of taken over baseball. And and I like it because it gives these players financial security. It does give them below the market value, but it is still a calculated risk for these teams. Where do you stand on that? And, And, you know, if you were in that position, would you take the deal or would it really depend on how well you were playing?
1: I think it comes down to, um, The confidence the player has in himself, which you'd be surprised how many big league players aren't very the most confident people. So I would say you're going to see majority of the majority of players going to take a deal like that because of all those factors that you say it's security for one. I mean, 70 million, you know, 40 after taxes, that's setting you up for life. That's all there is to it. You're done. Um, But is the player confident enough in himself? Um, allah Aaron judge was this year saying, no, I'm not going to take that deal. Uh, I think I'm going to have a monster year. And he did, he had one of the greatest years that we've ever seen. And he parlayed that into about 130 million more than he got offered, uh, pre spring training, you know? So, um, I would have taken it for sure, you know, cause it's just, I think it's just a smart move. Um, how much do you really need? And if you're that good, you're going to get another deal after that, that pre-arb deal that these guys are getting right now. I mean, uh, you know, and you're talking about 22 year olds, 21 year olds, uh, they're going to be
0: in their prime when these deals are up at 28, 29, I would definitely take it. I, I stand in the same boat and people say, Oh yeah, you know, well, I, you know, I would bet on myself, whatever. And I'm like, if I show you a room with $80 million in it, you can open the door and take it. You're going to close that door and say, I'll bet on myself for three more years so I can have two of those rooms. Like, it's easier said than done, especially in a humbling sport like baseball, right? You know, maybe you don't have the the physical liability as a player as much as a football, but it's so humbling and it just, you can go from figuring it out to lost pretty quickly, you know, a la Cody Bellinger and things like that. So, uh, you know, I, I even think some of the most confident guys are, are still willing to take that deal. I look at Ronald Acuna. I don't know if there's anybody that loves themselves more than Ronald Acuna, but he took the deal and everyone talks about, oh, he's so underpaid. I'll happily be underpaid for a hundred million dollars. And then look, he had yep. that ACL tear. I still think he's going to be exactly. great. I'll be fine, but it's just another reminder of like, Hey, he's human. Who knows what can happen? But, so but if he
1: didn't sign that deal and has that ACL tear and then has a subpar year. It's like, Oh, teams are going to be like, mm,
0: all right, we're going to go year to year from now on. Absolutely. And he took a step back last year. I think he bounces back, but clearly the knee was bothering him. So I think that's an, an excellent point. Jersey time. And I think I'm going to get this one first try. I'm, I'm, I'm feeling myself better.
1: If, if you, Todd Yeah, if we don't, I mean, I'm just walking away right
0: now. I will never do this again. Todd Elton is the jersey, right? Let's see it. Oh, that's an awesome jersey for those watching on YouTube. A nice little note there, too. Let's see if I can read it. Um, What does it say? It says, To Jeff, thanks for. Do you remember what it says? Uh, No. No, but I can tell you what most of your jerseys say. I can tell the listener what most of the jerseys say. It's something about sharing the field with you. Thanks for letting me share the field with you. I think is what it says all the best. Yeah, so right. what I've, what I've seen most of your Jersey say, which is very, very, very unsurprising is <clears throat> appreciating the way you played the game and, you know, admiring the way you played the game. And this was coming from like Ozzie Smith and from, you know, some of the better players to ever step between the lines. Um, what, what did that mean for you to, to like, do you, I, I know you, you're not a big uh, pat yourself on the back guy. You're one of the more humble guys I know, but I mean, do, do you ever just look at that and read that and just kind of like, or did you ever want to happen just soak that in? I mean, guys that, you know, I know you were starstruck at times to see in the all-star game, leaving you a note saying that they admired the way you played the game. I mean, I, I can't even imagine what that's like.
1: Yeah. It's um, you know, obviously very gratifying because I wanted to be known as you know a a great teammate uh B a guy that went out there every night and gave as much as he could every night and when you read your peers say nice stuff like that about you then it's like you know what I did it I did it you right did it. I played the game the right way
0: and and that and that, that was more important to me than about anything. And and you did just that. You did it really well. And you also played the game pretty well, uh, statistically speaking, also. Uh, that'll do it for this episode. I guess I want your final prediction. And again, it's it's not what you prefer, because I think you, you kind of gave us that thought. But do you think that Todd Helton gets in eventually? Um, I would say
1: he would have my vote but I think it's going to be a struggle for him to get in because yep. of all the stuff we discussed and just uh, with you. the amassed of numbers and, and that Coors Field black cloud hanging over him. Um, he's got my vote,
0: but I think it's going to take a lot of convincing for a lot of other people. We'll see. Next time we talk, I want to talk Carlos Beltran as well. Um, first year on the ballot, I saw some writers say, hey, not voting for him this time, but maybe next time, which I don't get, I never got that gonna, I, I, numbers can, are we, the same. They're not going to change in one year, year one or year five. The only
1: way that they makes sense for him you're not going to vote for him.
0: The only way that makes sense is if you have 10 votes and you leave the one guy off because it's his first year on the ballot and he's got more time. It's the only way that makes sense. But all, none of these yeah. guys have a full ballot. And there's no nah, i'm not voting for him first year that makes no sense if you're going to vote you're for right. him later you should vote for him now i can understand yep. someone convincing you or maybe you look at the numbers over the year and jason stark has talked about that you know when we had him on like you know the more i looked at it over the years i started to talk myself into this guy being a hall of famer that i get but hey, i'll vote for him later but not this year to me that's yeah. bs That makes no sense to me. (laughs) Thank you. I'll I'll end on that one. But always great talking to you. We'll we'll circle back on some Beltron talk and some more stuff as we get closer to the season. I also am excited to get some of your thoughts on the World Baseball Classic, which is creeping up. It's going to be in Miami. Uh, I know you'll probably be at some games. Hopefully we'll go together to one or two. And uh, I'm excited to start talking about that. So we will circle back in the next week or so and talk about that and uh, continue to see how these really frustrating Hall of Fame ballots come in. (laughs) Yeah, sounds good, Good Arm. (laughs) All right, appreciate it, Niner.